Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And uh, as you're turning there to the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, John Ross, who just led us in music, and also Jesse Holmes uh, for preaching the last couple weeks. They did an excellent job in challenging us as a church to be a people of God's Word. And so we're going to turn to God's Word again this morning and hear what God has to say to us. And as we turn to God's Word this morning, we'll be continuing our series in 1 Timothy. So we have been in 1 Timothy for several months, and we're resuming uh, that series this morning. And as you will recall, 1 Timothy is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. Uh, Timothy is a pastor in the city of Ephesus, and Timothy has been given quite a difficult ministry. He has been called to uh, care for a church in which there is false teaching in the church, and there are also individuals in the church who are opposing his leadership and opposing his teaching. And so Paul is writing to give Timothy instructions in this context, in this situation, And Paul actually tells Timothy very specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, why he is writing this letter to him. He says that he is writing this letter to Timothy so that Timothy would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So that one would know how they should behave in the church of God. Okay, So that's the purpose for why he's writing this letter. And so in this letter we have Paul's instructions as to how the church is to be structured, how the church is to function, how we as brothers and sisters in Christ are to relate to one another. So with that in mind, I want us to read our passage this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I'll read for us verses 17 to 25. And so uh, we'll finish out chapter 5 this morning. And then actually there's just one more chapter. So this is a pretty short letter, just six chapters in 1 Timothy and Uh, We'll finish out chapter 6 in the weeks to come. This morning, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. This is God's word. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word, and we now turn to your word, and with minds and hearts that are submitted and bow before you, we want to hear you speak to us through your word. And Father, we pray that as we listen to your word, that we would receive it with joy, 
and with faith and that we would respond in obedience. So help us now in these moments, Lord. Give us grace for the good of your church, for our joy, and for your great glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. One of the things that's noteworthy about this letter that Paul writes to Timothy is the amount of time that Paul takes to talk about the ministry of elders in the local church. You might recall that back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul laid out there, and R.G. read it for us this morning in the scripture reading, the qualifications of an elder. And then we see different references to the ministry of elders throughout the letter. And then we have this section here in chapter 5 where Paul again spends extended time speaking about the ministry of elders in the life of the local church. Now, for the average Bible reader, when they come across a passage like this, they might think, well, I'm not an elder, so surely this passage doesn't apply to me. Maybe I'll just jump ahead to another section where it's more applicable to my life. But I want to caution you that I think that would be unwise. I believe, in fact, there's a number of reasons why all of us should be interested in Paul's instructions about the ministry of elders in the life of a local church. One reason is because if we are a Christian, the Bible tells us that a Christian should be identified with and should be invested in a local church. And one of the most important decisions that any local church makes is who they choose to be their leaders. And so you may not think about it very often, but actually the church you choose to identify with and the leaders of that church, which you will necessarily then choose to identify with, actually have a significant bearing on your own spiritual good. Rather, uh, whether it is for bad, your spiritual uh, ill, or it is for your spiritual benefit. In addition to that, if you are a Christian, you should care about the Great Commission. You should care about the gospel going to the nations and people coming to faith in Christ. And for that reason also, I believe you should take interest in Paul's instructions as it relates to the ministry of elders in the life of the local church. We know that Paul himself was an evangelist. He was a missionary. He was particularly burdened that the gospel would be preached where Jesus had never been heard before and that people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus for their salvation. But Paul also knew that new Christians could not survive without a local church, and that local churches would not be healthy and they would not thrive without godly, faithful leadership. That's why we see with the Apostle Paul, as he went on his missionary journeys and he saw people coming to faith in Christ, he invariably over and over and over again would establish local churches and appoint elders, spiritual leaders, to lead those churches. That's why the Apostle Paul here in this letter takes so much time addressing this matter because he cared about the Great Commission. And if we care about the Great Commission, we also should care about the ministry of elders in the local church. I'll also say if you are a Christian or even if you're not a Christian, but you have an interest in or you are troubled by 
the moral failures of Christian leaders that we seem to see take place over and over and over again, then you should have an interest in what Paul has to say about the ministry of elders in the local church. I don't know if you saw it this last week, but tragically, another high-profile Christian pastor, one of the pastors of Hillsong Church, which is an internationally known church in Australia, resigned because of a moral failure. And whenever something like that happens, we should deeply be grieved, even if it's a Christian leader that maybe we don't have a lot in common with as far as theological distinctives or philosophy of ministry or that sort of thing. We should always be grieved when something like that happens. But you might be wondering as a Christian or even a non-Christian, well, does the Bible have anything to say about this? Does the Bible have anything to say about when these things happen? Does the Bible have anything to say about how we might prevent these things from happening? Or when they happen, how should we respond? And I believe, my friends, we will see this morning that in fact the Bible has clear, righteous, and redemptive guidance on how we should respond when things like this take place. So for all these reasons and more, we as a church should take interest in what the Apostle Paul has to say about the ministry of elders and the life of a local church. And so I want us to look at our passage this morning in three parts. First of all, we will consider in verses 17 and 18, honor due to elders, honor due to elders. Secondly, in verses 19 to 21, we will consider discipline of elders, discipline of elders. And then third, in verses 22 to 25, we will consider the appointment of elders, the appointment of elders. First of all, look there in verses 17 to 18, and here we see Paul laying out the principle that we are to honor elders. Look there in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, this idea of honor is found throughout this letter, Paul's letter to Timothy. So, back in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we saw there that Paul admonishes Timothy to show honor to older men and to older women in the church. He then, in, later on in chapter 5, instructs Timothy that the church is to show honor to widows. And we will see in the weeks to come, in chapter 6, Timothy instructs bondservants to show honor to their masters. In our passage this morning, Paul instructs Timothy that double honor is to be given to faithful elders. Now, let me just say here, initially, part of what this does not mean. So I think on this point, it's important for us to say what this does mean and also, in part, what it does not mean. Paul is not admonishing the congregation in uh, Ephesus to address their elders with superfluous honorary titles. The uh, very reverend, honorable doctor so-and-so, you know. I mean, that's oftentimes just a source of vanity and pride. 
Furthermore, Paul is not instructing those in the church of Ephesus when they come into the presence of the elders of the church to bow or to kiss the elder's ring or hand. I mean, we see some of these practices, right, in other church traditions. That's not what Paul is referring to here. But Paul does believe that with the responsibilities that come along with being an elder in a local church, there should be a corresponding measure of respect and honor. Of course, this is a bit awkward for me to talk about right now. A congregation honoring elders, since I serve as an elder here at Crawford Avenue, but here it is in the text, and we have to deal with it, right? And we see this principle really broadly spoken of in the Bible. The Bible reiterates this principle over and over and over again, that respect for authority is good, that respect for authority honors the Lord. And so we see in the scriptures that the Bible teaches us that a child should honor their parents, that employees should show respect to their employers, that the young should honor the elderly. We live in a military town. Soldiers should show respect and honor to their commanding officers. And as the Apostle Paul teaches us here, a congregation should show respect and honor to the elders of the church. Now notice here that Paul does not only say, though, that the church is to show honor to the elders. He actually says that they should show double honor. Now what does he mean by that? What does it mean to show double honor to those who faithfully serve as elders? Well, it seems clear from the context that what Paul has in mind here is both respect, which we've already been talking about, and pay or compensation. So John Stott, who's a New Testament scholar, puts it this way, both honor and honorarium. So look there in the passage. He says in verse 17 that those who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. Then verse 18, for or because the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So, according to the scriptures, all elders are called to rule, or we might say exercise oversight over the congregation, to lead the congregation. All elders are also called to teach. So, we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that one of the qualifications of an elder is that an elder be able to teach. But Paul is recognizing here that among a group of elders in a local congregation, it is oftentimes the case that there may be one or two or perhaps more who are particularly gifted in the teaching and preaching ministry of the Word. And what Paul is saying here is that those individuals, given the nature of their work, they should be compensated in such a way that they may give themselves fully to that work. So, It's interesting that Paul refers here to the ministry of the Word as a labor, right? He says those who labor in preaching and teaching. What Paul is recognizing here is that the ministry of the Word to faithfully study and interpret and communicate God's Word is a work. It requires extended periods of time of study and prayer and reflection and wrestling and preparation 
And Paul says that for the benefit of the church, the church should show double honor by one showing respect, but also giving compensation so that that individual or individuals may give themselves to studying and delivering God's word to God's people. Now notice this, Paul then goes on in order to establish the credibility of his directions, Paul goes on to cite two authorities, and they're pretty significant authorities. He cites Moses and he cites Jesus. First of all, he cites Moses in verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now that's a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Moses wrote these words. And the argument here is from lesser to greater. And it has a general application to all people, really. So the idea here is that if you have an ox and he's being put to work, and he is treading out the grain, so he's stepping on the grain, which is breaking the husk, which releases the kernel, then you shouldn't put a muzzle on the ox's mouth so that he's unable, once his work is done, to eat some of the kernels of the grain and benefit from what he's producing. Okay? Now, Moses, and by extension Paul, is arguing from the lesser to the greater. The idea is, if God is so concerned for the ox, that the ox would be treated fairly, that the ox would be given some of the benefits of what he's produced, then surely the case is also true for, say, employees and how employers treat their employees. We should pay people fairly. We should pay them on time. We should be good to them. And they should get a fair wage for their work. Paul takes that principle now and applies it to the ministry of elders in the life of the church. And if God cares such for an ox, then surely the church should care well for those who have been entrusted with the responsibility to lead them and to teach them. The second authority he cites is Jesus. And this is taken from Luke chapter 10. You may be familiar with this account. Jesus calls 72 of his disciples to himself. He gives them instructions and then he sends them out to minister in his name. He tells them as they go out that they are to take no money with them. And he gives them this instruction. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Here it is. For the laborer deserves his wages. So Jesus is sending them out with no money and he's saying, where you go to minister, where you go to serve, let them receive you into the house, let them provide for you and what you need and receive that because you are ministering to them in my name and that is part of the way that they respond and care for you and honor me. Now, of course, there are, again, we need to say what, what Paul is saying here and what Paul is not saying. There are some televangelists and other charlatans on TV and so forth that'll take passages like this and they'll say, well, this means that, you know, pastors should be provided with huge mansions and fancy cars and airplanes and so on and so forth. And of course, that is utter nonsense. But what Paul is concerned with here is that when a man or a group of men faithfully lead and serve a congregation that they and respond 
would care for those individuals in such a way that they do not have to be worried about providing for themselves or providing for their families, but with full energy and purpose and intentionality, they can give themselves to the ministry of the Word and to caring for God's people. Paul says that this is one of the ways that a church shows honor to their elders. And let me just say on this point how thankful I am for the faithful provision and generosity of Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. You know, there was a church in the New Testament, uh, the Church of Philippi, and they were one of the most faithful partners that the Apostle Paul had in gospel ministry. They faithfully gave to Paul's ministry as he was a missionary, taking the gospel where it had never been known before. And Paul writes them a letter. In our Bible, it's referred to as the letter to the Philippians. And many people believe that this letter, at the heart of it, was a thank you letter. Paul was writing the church primarily to thank them for their gifts. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes to the church and he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And I just want to take this moment to echo Paul's gratitude, to say how thankful I am for you, this congregation, and the way that you have been fair and also generous in the compensation of me and the other staff elders here at Crawford Avenue. And Paul says here that not only is that a way in which you honor us as your elders, but it is also an act of worship. It's an act of worship for which God is pleased. It is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Second, the discipline of elders. The discipline of elders. Look there in verses 19 to 21 and we read these words. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. So, Paul says, first of all, that we should honor elders, but now Paul makes it clear that to honor elders does not mean that an elder is above or beyond the need for accountability. Elders, like all of us, need accountability. And unfortunately, there are times when elders must be disciplined. Notice when Paul addresses here the discipline of an elder in our text, he is first concerned that such discipline be fair and it be just. He says there in the text, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now again, Paul is taking a principle that we see really throughout Scripture and he's applying it to the church and to elders. So way back, again from Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, we see that a charge is not to be um, confirmed against a person unless there's two or three witnesses. We also see this with Jesus. Jesus taught that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault alone. If he refuses to repent, then what? You are to take two or three witnesses. 
And so Paul now is taking this principle and he's applying it to the life and ministry of elders in the context of the local church. And Paul says that one of the ways that a church honors and respects their elders is by protecting them from unsubstantiated and false charges. One of the things we have to recognize here is that oftentimes Christian ministers are most susceptible to these types of vicious attacks. This is, in fact, proven by Scripture. You see how many godly men there are in the Scriptures who at one time in their lives faced false accusations. Think about Joseph, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Paul. There's other examples as well, and we could get into the specifics of each one of those, but each one of those men, godly men, in the church, godly men in the history of God's redemption of the world who face false charges against them. Of course, the Lord Jesus is a perfect example. Jesus was the Son of God who lived a perfect, sinless life, and yet we know that Jesus was falsely accused, viciously maligned, and wrongly condemned to death. So this means that a church needs to be careful that they do not participate in unsubstantiated false charges against their leaders. We know, broadly speaking, that there are situations in which an individual goes through maybe a difficult time in their lives. Maybe they feel overlooked. Maybe they feel lonely and forgotten. Maybe they're having a difficult time at home. Maybe they're having a difficult time at work. They begin to feel frustration and, and, and uh, resentment and bitterness. And as a result, they, they kind of lash out at someone, perhaps someone that doesn't have any, even anything to do with the situation that they're experiencing in their lives. And that can happen against church leaders. And especially if you have a man who's faithful to God's Word, who's getting involved in people's lives, who's willing to courageously confront sin. I had an old pastor friend share it with me one time. This was years ago that he shared this with me. But uh, he said that when he was a young pastor, there was a man in his congregation who made a charge that he, that is the man in the congregation, had had an affair with my friend's wife, so the pastor's wife. And this seemed really strange because the man and his wife were very close and he just thought this, this doesn't seem right. And So the pastor goes to his wife, lovingly trusting her, and he asked her if this was true or not, and she said, no, absolutely not. And so they met with this man and some other leaders in the church met with him and tried to figure out what was going on and what happened was a little bit of time passed and then he came forward and he acknowledged that he had made the whole thing up. That he had harbored immoral desires for the pastor's wife. He knew that she would never give him the time of day. And so he became increasingly resentful, bitter, and he made the whole thing up. Now my friends, that's an extreme example. But it's a perfect example of what Paul is talking about here and why a church should not entertain chirpings and talk and slander unless there's a credible charge that is substantiated by two or three witnesses. 
So Paul goes on to say, though, that although we want to protect spiritual leadership when they are innocent and falsely charged, when they are credibly charged and guilty, they must be held accountable. Look there in chapter 5, verse 20. He says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So when an elder's sin is of, great na- of grave, nature, grave nature and substantiated by two or three witnesses, and that elder then is confronted in their sin and they're unwilling to repent, they persist in their sin... Paul's directions here are very clear. He says they should be rebuked in the presence of all. Now, what does that mean? Well, in situations like this, you know, you could oftentimes have circumstances in which the individual is not willing to be physically present when the congregation gathers. But nonetheless, whether the individual is physically present or not, their sin should be publicly acknowledged. That individual should be removed from serving as an elder. And in most cases, situations like this, the individual should be removed from church membership. If the individual, though, is guilty and repentant, then a private rebuke may be sufficient. It depends on the nature of the sin and the person's response and so forth. And this should be a reminder to us that all church discipline, in any circumstance, the purpose of the discipline is not primarily punitive, that is to punish, but rather the purpose is to bring repentance and to bring reconciliation and to bring restoration. Of course, this is at the heart of the very gospel itself, right? We are all sinners in need of a Savior. This is why the Lord Jesus himself came and died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And yes, non-Christians need the gospel. And church members need the gospel. And church leaders need the gospel. But what Paul is addressing here is an unrepentant elder. And Paul is clear When an elder commits a sin that is disqualifying in nature, and especially if it is accompanied by indifference and hardness of heart, that elder is not to be permitted to slip out the back door quietly, go down the street to another congregation where they don't know anything's happened, and then afflict sin and abuse, the same sin and abuse on that congregation. No, Paul says... That with spiritual leadership comes a certain responsibility. And if there's unrepentant sin of a disqualifying nature, the individual is to be publicly rebuked. Now notice, Paul also links this with a very specific purpose that is healthy for the congregation as a whole. Look at this. He says there in verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, and he's still referring to elders, rebuke them in the presence of all. Here it is. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, when an action like this occurs, it is an awesome thing. When an action like this occurs, there should be 
a holy fear that falls upon the congregation. Recognizing that none of us, even the spiritual leaders, especially the spiritual leaders of the congregation, are beyond the standards of God's Word. I'll have to say that even this week studying this passage again, a holy fear fell upon my own mind and my own heart as I was once again freshly reminded of my and the rest of the elders here at this church, our own susceptibility to sin, our own weaknesses, and the fact that none of us, none of us, leaders in our church or anyone here this morning, stands beyond or above the standard of God's Word. God is a holy God, and He calls us to be a holy people. And I would encourage you sincerely, pray for your pastors as we pray for you that we would walk in obedience to our great God. Third, the appointment of elders. The appointment of elders. Look there in verses 22 to 25. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So back in verse uh, 22... Paul says, do not be hasty in laying on of hands. Now, in the New Testament, the laying on of hands communicates the idea that one is being set, a, set apart and they are being appointed to a particular task or ministry. So just a few examples, the first deacons that were chosen in Acts chapter 6, we read, these, that is the deacons, they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Or in Acts chapter 13, when the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were first called to be missionaries and to take the gospel to the nations, we read, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Or here in 1 Timothy, just a few verses previous uh, to the text that we're studying this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul instructs Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So we see this repeated over and over again in the New Testament, this idea of laying on hands is setting someone aside for a particular work or ministry. Now Paul instructs us here in our text this morning, do not be hasty in laying on of hands. In other words, do not set aside a man, do not appoint a man to serve as an elder without adequate testing and evaluation and examination and thoughtful reflection and prayer. Don't, we could say it this way, don't rush things and make a bad decision. Don't rush things and appoint someone who's not qualified. Now, notice the connection here with what Paul is saying here and the previous verse. In the previous verse, in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul has said that if a man 
commits sin of a disqualifying nature and refuses to repent, he should be rebuked before the church as a whole. Now Paul is telling us in verse 22, the way you prevent being in a situation like that is to, on the front end, take care. To follow the biblical instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Take care to assess and evaluate. Take care of thoughtful reflection and prayer so that you won't have to find yourself in a situation where you have men who are morally failing and being disqualified. Now, of course, this is not foolproof. Of course, there are men in the Bible we see who are godly men, who love the Lord, who nonetheless, at some point in their life, commit significant moral failure. We think about David, right? David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he committed adultery with Bathsheba and was complicit in the murder of Uriah. We think about the apostle Peter, who denied the Lord three times, and yet God restored Peter to himself and ultimately used Peter to bring about the establishment of his church. So this is not foolproof. It's not to say that if, if, if you find yourself in a situation, a church finds themselves in a situation in which a leader has a significant moral failure, that that's necessarily a failure on the part of the church. But it is to say, in following this principle, that we will find ourselves in a situation far less often of having to publicly rebuke spiritual leaders if on the front end, we take the time to adequately and faithfully assess them. I will say here at Crawford Avenue, we have developed quite a thorough process in terms of assessing men as they go through the process of coming into spiritual leadership. And um, I think by God's grace, we have benefited from that. Now, notice. Notice in verse 23, in my text, there are parentheses. So I don't know if you're using an ESV Bible this morning, the English Standard Version Bible, or maybe you're using a different translation, but there's parentheses in the English Standard Version in verse 23. And it's because it seems as though verse 23 is misplaced, like totally out of context. Paul takes this tangent, okay? And he says in verse 23... So he's been talking about elders, the appointment of elders, so forth. He says in verse 23, No longer drink any water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, how does that relate to what Paul is saying? Some of this is speculative, but let me, I think if we give this further thought, there's a connection here. So notice in verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in laying on of hands. Now notice this, he says, Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So, if, if you're not hasty in laying on hands, then you will prevent yourself and the church will prevent itself from participating in the sins of others by not appointing men who are unqualified and then, as a result, fall into moral failure. You see, if we're careful... We will prevent ourselves from endorsing that, to being a part of that, to in some ways being culpable in their moral failure if we take our time. If we rush things and we don't give care to the qualifications set forward in the Scriptures and we don't 
assess and we don't make it a matter of prayer and we appoint people that aren't qualified and they do have moral failure, then in some ways we as a church are culpable in that. So Paul says, keep yourself pure. Don't participate in the sins of others by being careful, by being thoughtful and assessing before you appoint. And then he says, after he says, keep yourself pure, he says, and don't just drink water, but drink a little wine. Okay? And you might be going, okay, what does that have to do with keep yourself pure? I think the connection is that Paul is saying to Timothy here that keeping yourself pure is not equivalent with asceticism. Now, why do I say that? If you've been here for the series, you might remember that back in chapter 4, Paul spends the early part of chapter 4, he spends a section dealing with the dangers of asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that through rigorous self-denial, one can achieve a higher level of spiritual, um, uh, a spiritual attainment in closeness to God, okay? Through rigorous acts of self-denial, and particularly by say, forever swearing off things that are good that actually the Lord would have us to receive with thanksgiving. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't don't participate in asceticism, okay? So it seems like what Paul is saying here is, I want you to keep yourself pure, but purity is not equivalent to asceticism. In other words, you don't have to drink just water. You can drink a little wine too. It'll be good for your stomach, See, an ascetic practice might be, I won't drink wine, I won't eat certain foods, so on and so forth. Paul is saying, no, Timothy, you've had some issues with your stomach and other physical ailments, and drinking a little wine might be good for you. In ancient times, of course, the Bible speaks very much so about many of the dangers of alcohol and wine, but also we know there are some benefits. In ancient times, they would drink some wine for their stomach. We know today some people believe that moderate uses of wine are good for one's heart. So it seems like that's what Paul is speaking of here when he says, keep yourself pure, but also you can drink a little bit of wine. Now, with that parenthetical note, Paul then goes back to the topic in verses 24 of 25 of of assessing and appointing elders. Notice there in verse 24, he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, what does Paul mean here? What what does the word conspicuous mean? Conspicuous means apparent, uh, open, uh, obvious, okay? And so Paul says on the one hand that the sins of some people are conspicuous. They're they're apparent. They're open. Immediately, you're aware of them. Others, he says... Uh, And he says, but the sins of others appear later. And so what Paul is saying here in the context of appointing elders, laying hands on them, he's saying you need to take your time. There are some men who may at first seem gifted or qualified to serve as an elder, but you need to get to know them because things might be revealed in time that you first didn't know. And of course, we all have, let me just say this, we all have sin in our lives in various ways. We all have weakness and baggage from our past and so forth. 
And the Lord can give us great victory over that sin. And the Lord, we can, we can meet him and experience his healing and experience his restor- restorative power in the midst of our brokenness and our failures and so forth. And, and those can become tremendous opportunities then for ministry to others. As we're able to speak to others and minister to others and, and speak firsthand experience of the way we've experienced God's power and healing in our own lives. So we need to remember that, that this, is not, this is not some assessment that like if you've ever had sin in your past or you've ever struggled with something or you have brokenness that you wouldn't be qualified. No. But if there is some sin that's not repented of, that's disqualifying in some nature or that sort of thing that needs to be exposed, we need to give time to get to know individuals so that those things might come to the surface. And at that point, we might say, okay, this individual is not qualified, or maybe they just need some more time or whatever it might be, but at least there's an awareness. But then there's good news as well. He says, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. In other words, good works are obvious. Good works are apparent. Good works are out there for everyone to see. And so there will be many men in the congregation who are doing good works and blessing the congregation are such a critical part of the flourishing and the life of the body of Christ. And not all of them will necessarily be called to be elders, right? Of course not, and that's fine. But with those men that it seems like over time, given their uh, gifting and their character and, and, and so forth, that they might be called to serve as an elder... Well, the good news is God's not trying to hide them from us. That their good works over time, they're conspicuous. They'll be seen. And even those good works that aren't immediately seen, in time they'll be exposed. They'll come to light. So that when we see them, we can rejoice in them. And then we can affirm them. And we can be thankful for what God has provided for the church in that person and in their good works. And how do we know who they are? Well, God most often reveals them through their humility, their faithful service, their fruitful labor and work in the lives of others. They become more and more apparent, and then we joyfully affirm what God is already doing. And those are the men that we should lay hands on, that we should pray for, that we should set aside to lead the congregation by teaching and shepherding. I hope you see this morning why it is important for all of us to be concerned about Paul's instructions to the church about the ministry of elders in a local body. If we care about our own spiritual health, we'll be concerned about what Paul has to say about the ministry of elders in the local church. If we care about the Great Commission, we will be concerned about, Paul, about what Paul has to say about the ministry of elders in the local church. If we are concerned about the purity of the church and the testimony of the church, then we will have an interest in what Paul has to say about the ministry of elders in the local church. And so praise God for the elders that he has provided this church with. And uh, we need to pray for them. We need to lift them up. We need to honor them and respect them. 
And uh, we need to pray that the Lord would continue to bless our body as he raises up men in our church to serve in this capacity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And uh, we are thankful, Lord, as a church that you have given us instructions as to how we are to live and function and even be structured uh, in our life together. Lord, help us to be faithful in these matters. Uh, We pray that as a church we would love and respect and honor our elders. And Lord, I do pray for myself and for the other elders of our church. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would protect us from sin. I pray that you would enable us, Lord, to faithfully fulfill the responsibility that you have given us as men uh, to teach your word and to love and care uh, for your people. Uh, Lord, we pray for our church here at Crawford Avenue that we would thrive, that we would flourish as we submit ourselves to your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would be an example uh, of your holiness and that we would be faithful to take this gospel, this good news, even to the ends of the earth. So, Lord, uh, take your word this morning, apply it to each of our lives as you uh, know that we need to hear it and the specific ways that we need uh, for it to touch our lives and to change us. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.